professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Professor Lamia Maula of Wellesley College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. We are recording on July 25th, 2023. I am going to try this beer. It's called Velvet Moon, and it is made by the Mighty Squirrel Brewing Company in Waltham, Massachusetts, so it's local. And this one has been in my fridge for a really long time because it's a it's a mocha stout. It's brewed with chocolate and cold brew coffee, and I never know when to drink it because I don't want to drink a beer in the morning, but I don't want to drink coffee in the afternoon, but we're recording this at noon. So now is my perfect time to try it. Can you tell us about about your drink? Yeah, of course. I'm having some tea today. And this tea, it's like a mix of many different worlds. So uh, it's a tea that I brought from home, which is Bangladesh. So it's from Silet of Bangladesh. And then my friend was recently traveling to South Africa, and he got me this tea spice. So I have mixed the tea spice and the tea from Bangladesh with the milk from Canada. So here we <laughs> that's my drink for today. That sounds amazing. I'm going to try this this beer. Hold on. Cheers. Cheers. How is your tea? It's really good. Yeah. This stout is delicious. I can really taste the coffee, so I expect to be inebriated and caffeinated by the end of this interview. <laughs> I'll just be talking faster and faster with more and more enthusiasm. <laughs> So now that we are drinking our drinks, uh, let's talk about the Sparkler Galaxy. And I just want to say that this is a great name for an object. <laughs> As listeners of the show know, most of the time we're using names like 1999 KW4 or GJ1132. <laughs> so Sparkler Galaxy is a real improvement. Can you just start us off by describing what it looks like? Yeah, so the Sparkler Galaxy really looks like how the name sounds. I mean, that's where the name came from. It's because we looked at the first image from the JWST, which came, I think it was July 12th, 2021. And I am part of the Canadian team who made one of the instruments that's on board. So all of us were together at St. Mary's Halifax and we were eagerly waiting 7 p.m. You know, Joe Biden was going to release this image. Um, and when the image came on, that was actually one of the first galaxies that we noticed because it was so shiny and sparkly. So it's this lensed galaxy, which means that it's kind of stretched by gravitational lensing by the cluster in front of it. But we have seen many lensed galaxies. Uh, what was very intriguing about this one is that it had this tiny dots all around it, which looked like little star star clusters that gave it that look of a, like a, kind of a sparkler that on the sky. And we hadn't seen anything like that before, you know, with, with that much sensitivity and resolution, such an early universe. So yeah, that was the first day that we saw the first image from JWST. And by the next day we were working on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have so many questions. This is such a, <laughs> a really interesting galaxy. You mentioned lensing and you kind of briefly explained it, but could you go into just a little bit more detail of what gravitational lensing is? And I believe this particular galaxy was actually, you could see it three times in the image, which is a little weird. Yes, yes, of course. Gravitational lensing, it's this phenomenon, which is like nature's 
magnifying glass, you know. So we have the telescope that helps us to magnify anything on the sky. But then there is this other phenomenon, which is the nature's magnifying glass, and that's the gravitational lens. And it's a lens that's made out of mass, not out of glass, you know, like the lens on our telescopes or on our eyeglasses. It's made out of mass, which actually bends the the space-time itself so that when light is traveling through it, it's it's bent and magnified and maybe sometimes even demagnified, but it bends the path of the light as it is coming to us. Now, unlike the magnifying glass, which does not make objects, you know, multiply imaged. So you mentioned that the sparkler is triply imaged. That's exactly right. It's actually quadruply imaged. The other, (laughs) the fourth one was behind another very massive galaxy. So we could not really analyze the light, but we, you know, we did, we, we are not even sure it is the galaxy, but it really looks like there is a fourth image behind another galaxy. So the reason that there can be multiple images is that when you have a very massive object, it warps the light in such a way that you, the light that is coming to, to your eye can be coming from many different paths, not just one path, but it can be deflected into many different paths and then come to your eye. So you can, have, you can see the same object many times. It's kind of like when you look at an aquarium, and you're looking at a fish in the aquarium. And when you look at the aquarium from the corner, sometimes you can, you can see the same fish twice on the both sides. And that's kind of what's happening with this gravitational lensing, the multiple image. It is not two fishes, it's the same fish, but you're seeing it twice because of the, what the glass and the water is doing to the path of the light. I love that explanation. I love nature's <laughs> magnifying glass. It's so good. So there's this sparkler galaxy. It's super cool. There's actually multiple images of it in one single image from the telescope. And you started analyzing it, and you found something really cool about it, which I'll let you get to. Yeah, of course. So like I said, that we hadn't really seen anything like that before. And what made it very intriguing is that these small star clusters, they were kind of hanging out around the galaxy, not really on the galaxy itself. So Usually when we see like a spiral galaxy like our Milky Way, all the star clusters that you see, the bright ones, are generally on the disk of the galaxy. So like the, there will be like these little clumps of stars, star-forming knots on the disk, on the spiral arms. Or, you know, if you look at the Whirlpool galaxy, there are these beautiful star clumps. This one actually had this star cluster around the galaxy, not just on the galaxy. There are some on the galaxy, but they're sufficiently separated out that it looked like they might be actually on the halo of the galaxy itself. So it's it's kind of like a bound to the galaxy, but not really on the disk. And we were thinking that what can they be? So in our Milky Way, there are these things called globular clusters, which are actually just a weird name for star clusters. So they are like there's millions of stars gravitationally bound together. So they're held together by gravity all together, millions of stars. And they are sometimes the, the oldest known objects in the universe. Some of the globular clusters that we have around our Milky Way have ages as old as the universe itself. So that kind of gives you an indication that these are some of the first structures that were formed 
when the star formation was starting in the universe right after the Big Bang, right after the Dark Ages, which is the period when stars and galaxies and structure were starting to form. So globular clusters had been studied for decades because, you know, there are over 150 of them around the Milky Way. They're very bright. If you're lucky enough to go to a very dark place, you can see them with your naked eyes. Many astronomers of the past have done it. And their age is the other issue that, that oh my God, these are so old. Like, you know, at, at some point people thought they're older than the universe. You know, there had been many times that people have measured the ages of globular clusters and found that they actually exceed the age of the universe and then realized that they, the measurement was probably wrong. So that has happened. So for something that has been studied for decades, we still don't know what the actual ages are of these globular clusters. And that's because it's, it's hard to age something that is old. So the analogy that I like using is because I'm a cat lady is that if I show you the picture of a, you know, a grown up cat, And I say that, is this cat 10 years old or is it 13 years old? Do you think you can confidently say what the age of that cat is? No. (laughs) No, right? But if I give you the picture of that same cat from like 10 years ago, and I ask you, is this cat like a kitten that was just born last month or is it a three-year-old cat? Will that, in that case, will you be able to say what the cat's age is. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) With just those two choices, that seems easier. (laughs) Right. It's hard to age something that is old, you know, because once you come to a certain age, you kind of like are passively getting older, you know. And that, you know, it happens for human, it happens for animals, and it happens for anything in our, you know, all celestial bodies. Once you have a star cluster that is sufficiently old, then all that is left are just stars of the same type. And you're not, you don't really have the new just born stars anymore. And it's hard to tell that is it a 10 billion years old star or a 13 billion years old star, right? So we are now going to a billion years, not not just cat years anymore. (laughs) So from just our Milky Way, even though we can really like see every stars of a, of a globular cluster separately, because we have that resolution power now in our telescopes, it still is hard to say what their ages are. So what we know is that the globular clusters around the Milky Way are over 10 billion years old with quite a big uncertainty on their age. So are these objects that were born right at the start of the universe, so what we call the cosmic dawn, when galaxies were just starting to form, structure was starting to form? Or is it something that was formed, what we call cosmic noon, which is kind of kind of the peak epoch of all structure formation? So the most amount of stars and galaxies formed around 3 billion years after the Big Bang. So when is it that it formed? Because understanding that will help us understand many phenomena of the early universe, such as like reionization, where star formation kind of stopped for a while, or what, how it affects, for example, all these global clusters that we have around our Milky Way, how did they affect the, the Milky Way formation and its evolution? So 
that's what we thought that you know if these objects is what we think it is which are globular clusters we want to age them we want to see how old they are and the reason we could do that is because we are looking at a universe that is about 9 billion years ago so the light it actually took the light 9 billion years to come to us from that galaxy so this we are looking at something that happened in the universe 9 billion years ago when the age of the universe was about 4 billion years old 4.7 billion years old so if we can measure the age of that object then we no longer have to ask the question is it 10 or 13 billion years old we can ask the question, is it like a few hundred million years old? So it's just a new star cluster, or is it about 4 billion years old, older star cluster? And that's actually an easier problem, an easier question to answer. And yeah, that's what we did with the sparkler. So that was our whole analysis that, you know, let's age date these this really far away star clusters. You mentioned this, and I, I thought you explained it clearly, but it's such a, a weird concept. I want to take a minute and go back, which is this idea that if you're looking at things in the night sky, things that are really far away, you're actually looking at the past because it takes time for the light to get to your eyes, which is really weird. Like you look at the sun and you're actually looking at the sun a few minutes in the past. And you look at things farther from the sun and because it, nothing can travel faster than light, you're always kind of looking both far away and in the past, which is kind of bananas. Is it normal to you now to think about that? Is it still a little bit weird and fun? Well, I, I, I think that is one of the concepts that really drove me to astronomy when I was a, so when I was a student at Wellesley, and that, that was the time when I realized that this was happening. I was like, what? You know, <laughs> that's the thing that really blew my mind, that every time you look up at the sky, you're essentially time traveling. As if looking at the sky wasn't cool enough. Like, right, and. exactly. <laughs> so the, like you mentioned that you know, the sun, the light takes about eight minutes to come to us because light is traveling at a constant speed that we are looking at the sun as it was eight minutes ago. And if we want to look at the sun how it is now, we have to wait eight minutes, right? So the closest star that we have, which is Proxima Centauri, I think it takes light about four years from Proxima Centauri to come to us. So that is like the closest star. So, you know, when we look up at the night sky, we see thousands of stars, but the closest one is taking four years to come to us. And Andromeda, which is our closest galaxy, the distance to that is is 2.5 million light years, right? So if you look at the Andromeda with a telescope, you are looking at something that happened 2.5 million years ago. So yeah, like essentially that's why like I like calling telescopes time machines, you know, when people say that, oh, will we ever have time machines? But it's like, we do, you know? <laughs> and so this uh, sparkler galaxy is 9 billion with a B yes. years old. That's and right. that's, that's how far you're looking into the past, which is just, again, amazing. And you were using the analogy of kind of like cosmic noon. <laughs> so not quite the very beginning, but, but not too far away from the very beginning either. That's right. So if you look at like how stars formed in the universe, it's, it's kind of started off slowly and then it got really fast. 
stars and galaxies are forming at a very, very rapid rate, which is the kind of the peak epoch of the star formation. And that's what we call the noon. And since then, it has kind of slowed down. And, and that's one of the reasons because our universe is getting bigger and bigger. It's expanding. So things are kind of moving farther away from each other. And also like our environments and conditions are changing. So most of the stars really formed, you know, like a majority of the Milky Way formed during that era, which was what we call the cosmic noon. And cosmic noon has been very well studied by the Hubble Space Telescope. So that that's the other thing that was fascinating with this work is that people thought that we knew everything we could about the cosmic noon because HST had shown us everything. And the JWST is going to be the telescope for the cosmic dawn because we will be able to, for the first time, see the extremely early galaxies. But with the sparkler galaxy is one of the first work that we did, which is alpha cosmic noon galaxy and because it showed that no with better resolution you will see more things <laughs> i mean we have seen like beautiful images of saturn and jupiter right with jwc so it doesn't matter <laughs> um, <laughs> you can you i'm pretty sure you can like make really big contributions in every field uh, but I know that everybody was like, we're going to find the furthest galaxy. Like that was it, there was, it was almost a race the first few weeks that the JWST was, the data was coming out and everybody was trying to find the furthest photon coming. But yeah, but then you see shiny, sparkly things nearby and you get distracted. That's a perfect lead into my next question. So one of my students last semester had interesting thoughts about pretty things and science. Pretty things are inherently attention grabbing, but the idea of something being pretty isn't necessarily thought of a scientific reason to study it. You can't just like write a grant and be like, it's super pretty. I want to look at it. Right. <laughs> and in fact, like a lot of science is often like visually ugly. And maybe there's an association between ugliness and scientific rigor, which is maybe why many scientists still have like HTML personal websites. <laughs> but some scientists, such as Professor Robin Wall Kimmerer, have argued that something being pretty can be a sign of something really interesting and something really scientific going on. Um, and so I bring this up because you, you just mentioned that it was shiny and sparkly. And in another interview, you said you were searching for the farthest things in the image, but got sidetracked by the sparkler galaxy because it was shiny and sparkly. And that led to this like really great discovery. So I was kind of wondering what your thoughts were on that, like the idea that because it was pretty, it may be in sparkly, it got your interest. And that was a sign that it was actually scientifically fascinating. No, that's a great question because, you know, for the first few days when we were getting sidetracked by this really sparkly object, we were questioning ourselves that, you know, while everybody else is looking for the furthest red dot, why are we working on this galaxy? But so first of all, you, you can like ask like, what is pretty, right? The beauty is like in the eye of the beholder. So I think the one of the reasons that we found it extremely pretty and exciting is because we haven't seen anything like that before. And it, you know, in the back of our head, it was like, there is something very intriguing going on over here that we haven't. And, and that's what was making it a lot more alluring to us, I think. So for my PhD studies, I looked at like thousands and thousands of galaxies. And I find like every galaxy pretty. I mean, I have spent so many hundred hours right now looking at all these JWST images. And, you know, you can find 
things that are pretty because they're very orderly, you know, they have this nice spiral arms. And then you will find them pretty because they're very disorderly, you know, like there's mergers going on, there are stars happening all over the place. And now we are also finding things in in multi-wavelength, you know, in a range of wavelength that we haven't quite looked at before, right? Thanks to HST, we have the UV and the optical, and now with JWST, we're going all the way to near near to mid-infrared. And then you're seeing that how things look extremely different at different wavelengths. And then you look at something, the same thing with a radio telescope, and it's like, that's just a pile of noise, Right, like it's very hard for poor radio astronomers to show you something pretty, because you know everything is so blobby, and because you don't have the resolution, you're just looking at that. Hey, look, there is that one signal, and I swear to you, that is my pretty galaxy. But that is also exciting because sometimes, like you know, you look at something with HST, it's extremely nice. You know, it it has dust forming lanes and stars. And then you look at the ALMA image of that, which is the radio image, and then it's just this one blip, right, in the in a sea of noise. And that's also exciting because it, it tells you something that's going on in the galaxy, which makes it even more interesting that, oh, there is probably an AGN or some, or like a lot of dust or something. So yeah, I don't know if I am rambling about <laughs> what you said, but yeah, I think it really depends like what you're finding, what you think is pretty and exciting. Like, you know, scatter plots are very pretty sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting this idea that, you know, you've looked at so many galaxies, you know, more galaxies than even the average astronomer. <laughs> and And there's something about like, you know, you're kind of finely attuned to them. And if you see something interesting, your brain can recognize, that, oh, this one's different. And maybe you don't mm-hmm. in exactly know why, but but the brain's very powerful at pattern matching. So that like <laughs> means something, right? And right. maybe that's, you know, interpreted as like, oh, it's sparkly, but it's it also kind of captures your interest in a way that I think should be respected, you know, and leads <laughs> to better scientific discoveries. Right, right. This result got a lot of press. Like, what did it feel like to to take a look at this and learn something about it and then get a lot of recognition for it? That that just came out of the blue, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, uh, you know, we did not, the, the first day that we were waiting for the JWST image, it was not our goal to, you know, let's find the most grabbing object that, you know, we, we, I just felt very grateful to be in that space because I know that a lot of the people in my team were waiting for 30 years <laughs> for this telescope to be launched. And here I am just like showed up <laughs> and then the telescope launched, you know, like the right time at the right place. And then we just found this galaxy, which just was in this very intriguing space. What I did really enjoy is how it got people interested about learning things like galaxies and star clusters and ages of stars and the fact that we are looking at an universe that is early. So I was doing a lot of popular science talks about JWST prior to the launch because, you know, the launch of the JWST itself caught a lot of attention from people. But talking about a telescope that is about to be launched and will do great things is nothing compared to when you get that scientific 
data and then you can tell that, look, this is what we were talking about for all these years when we were saying that this thing is going to be launched and will do, will tell us about the early universe. Like this is exactly the type of things we were looking for. So it, it was quite like we, we all really were appreciative of the fact that people found it also as exciting as we were all excited, like a bunch of kids jumping up and down, you know? Could you give us a little taste of what it's like to do this data analysis? Like, what sort of software did you use? You know, like, I feel like something that's lost a lot of times is that people, you know, they get that there's this pretty image, maybe they have it as their desktop wallpaper, maybe they have it as a tattoo. But like, how do you get from that image to like the science? It's a lot of teamwork and a lot of patience. (laughs) For the analysis of this object, it was You know, it was not just one person who did the analysis, which is how science works, that you have to rely on the work of hundreds of people around you who have each integral part in this whole data analysis and processing. So, you know, the JWST work, it went there, it's taking images. The image gets sent to us within within an hour actually. So the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, they get the data from the telescope directly. And then they do the pre-analysis, putting the image together at different wavelengths. So that to you will just look like black and white images of the same thing, black and white, but in many different wavelengths. So something that's red, something that's blue, green, but even beyond that in the many wavelengths on the in the near infrared. So then we get this image. So then we have this kind of a long line of about 10 people in an assembly line who each does different parts of the analysis. So the first person will take the image, do the, you know, remove all the noise, for example. You have to remove all the cosmic rays and then you have to kind of calibrate the image. So like, you know, if I am seeing a small dot over here, how much light that is, what does that, so you have to measure that. So as we go down this path, I am kind of on the last stage where I take all these different colored images and then I try to convert from that information in the light to information about the physical properties of the galaxy. So if you see this type of color, what will that mean? Like what what ages of stars are in there? If the galaxy is this big on the sky, what does it mean in terms of its physical scale? Like how many light years across is it? So those are the analysis then that I do after a lot of people have done really hard work in cleaning the data for me. So all the softwares that we used are written in Python and most of them are open source. We have them available on GitHub for other people to redo our our analysis. So one of the things that we did with this galaxy is that with our data, we published our notebooks that we used to do our analysis and the data itself. We had them all made available. So yeah, it's a lot of coding. We use some image visualization softwares that maybe other people don't use. So there, for example, there's something called DS9 or the newer generation is called Carta. You can actually measure different things of it, like how much light. It's all about like how much light is there at different wavelengths. Like that's the meat of the analysis is there that how much light are we measuring of it? And what does that mean about the type of star there is? Yeah, so that that's kind of a long windy way of saying what we do. <laughs> 
I'm sure it's very abbreviated. I'm, uh, <laughs> do you have a sense of like, how long did this analysis take you? Was it like days, um, weeks, months? So we had the first results within the first day. You know, That's awesome. It, That's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. We did some really quick and dirty analysis to just tell us if this is something of, in, if this is interesting. And our first analysis that were showing us that this is something that is actually very old, that this star clusters are formed very early on in the universe. And when you get something like that, then your anxiety kicks in. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, wait, that there is no way this thing is that old. Like, so I had this professor in grad school who said that if you find something that is really remarkable, it's either like it's something that we have never seen before, but ninety percent of the time that you did it wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. So then, I guess the first result we have on the first day, and then it took us about a month to redo the analysis many times in many different ways before we started writing the paper. And, the, and you know, this is a paper that was written very collectively. I think we had the draft out within three weeks of the data release wow. um, at that time. And, and that's because everyone on the team was working together. And like, I would show up on the overleaf draft and there were words on it, you know, <laughs> which is like the, the, best kind of paper writing experience that I've ever had because everybody was so excited about it. And I remember that for three weeks straight, we had group meeting every morning at nine where we were like, okay, this is the status of what's happening today. And everybody was saying that, okay, we did this part, this part, this part. And I know that all JWC teams had this kind of work happening, all the groups around the world. There were like hundreds of, you know, online paper writing happening at the same time where people in Australia were waking up and writing when people in the U.S. were going to bed and, you know, Europeans <laughs> were just in the middle of the analysis. Yeah, it, it really brought us together in a major way. Yeah, That's so cool. And I really love that detail because... You know, in like a movie, a scientist makes a discovery and they're like, I've made the discovery. But what really happens is like, yeah, exactly the case that you just described, right? Day one, you're like, this is cool. And then like a whole month later, you're like, <laughs> I now believe that this is actually cool. I've checked it many times. Exactly. Like getting the first result takes you a day and then putting the error bar on right? it takes you a month. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for telling us about that and being on the show. And now that we've heard all about the Sparkler Galaxy, we get to hear a fun fact about Lamia. Let's see. I learned how to ride a bike, how to swim, and how to drive a car all during my second year of grad school. <laughs> I just didn't do that before that because I didn't need to. Like I, I grew up in Bangladesh and we didn't have like pools and stuff so i never really swam and also like i was living in a very dense city where people didn't really bike so i didn't need to bike and women don't really drive back at home so i didn't drive so and then all of a sudden you're in grad school and you're like wait i need to have all these skills to like <laughs> go around with my day-to-day -day life yeah so i guess i don't know if that's a fun fact but <laughs> there was a one year of like learning a lot of things not just astronomy <laughs> i do love the idea that you're in grad school right 
classically a time where there's a lot of learning going on and you're like, this isn't quite enough. I would also like to learn how to swim, ride a bike and drive a car. This is fine. I'll just take those three extra tasks on top of, the, of all, all the math. <laughs> well, that's great. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun talking about it again. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.